as you see, as was read for you just a moment ago, we're jumping into um, chapter 3 this morning here in the book of Ruth. Our time is it's progressing through the narrative of what we've covered from chapter 1 and chapter 2, and now we're kind of closing out chapter 2 and transitioning in to chapter 3. As we make our transition, what is going to happen around verse 17 of chapter 2 and for our time this morning, the narrative story or the emphasis of the story shifts from the interaction of what we saw last week between Ruth and Boaz, and that is this interplay of uh, really hashing out or filling out an exposition of the worthiness of the man Boaz and his character. He was introduced once again in verse 1 of chapter 2 that he is a worthy man. Now the other aspect that's going to begin coming out in the narrative now that we're picking back up on is the narrator's indication to us of verse 1 in chapter 2. Also, not only is this man Boaz a worthy individual, and then he gives us or she gives us the story of how this is so through his interactions with those who work in his fields, how he treats those who are under him, how he treats the young woman Ruth as he has interaction with her. But then we're moving beyond this sense of worthiness for a portion of time in the story this morning to focus a little bit on the aspect of verse 1 that, re- that tells us he is a relative of her husband's, that is Naomi. Now, the shift that comes now back to Naomi about this relative figure, the man named Boaz. It's interesting about how, I note for you up front, um, how encouragement tends to be contagious. That is, when one person is refreshed by another individual, that encouraged and, and then the spirits are lifted up and that one individual tends to have an effect of contagious spirit in lifting the spirits of others. So when one is kind of down, you again, my point being, don't underestimate the impact that your encouragement upon one person, and it can be in a myriad of ways. It could be in something simple. It could be in something massive. What we looked at the point with Boaz was he was a man of encouragement. He came and had compassion upon Ruth in multiple ways. And he didn't just neglect her plight that he was well aware of. Remember in the interaction between him and Ruth, he says, I've heard all that's gone on. I've heard how you've left Moab, a a people that you knew, and you came to a people that you don't know. I've heard about all that you've done for your mother-in-law. And that encouragement uh, that he provides for Ruth in that interaction is not only, again, hollow words, but it's filled out when he provides for her at the table at the end of a long day of work. He calls her in. He provides for her grain, uh, shares his table with her, and she hears the words and sees the encouragement, and she speaks of it, you've spoke so compassionately and kindly to me. And that encouragement that she has then, as she leaves that last few hours of work, she goes back to Naomi, and that's where our scene opens up this morning, as she comes back to Naomi, and If I could take you back just a moment before in the narrative where um, Ruth leaves Naomi to go find a field to glean in. And you can imagine up to that point, at least as the story is told to us, she has not heard one kind or encouragement or empowering word from her time since she left Moab. So kind of, I, I don't think it's too much to read into the story that, yes, indeed, Ruth, as we see, is filled with faith. And she's acting on that faith. And her action is clear. But certainly acting faithfully doesn't mean you're um, exuberant in your spirit and uplifted in heart. You can still be facing many unknowns, acting faithfully upon the promises of God, but discouraged while doing so. And that encouragement that then comes, you see again, is Ruth almost melts with excitement and encouragement. And you can just see the burden being lifted. And um, if you see just her language there or her behavior in verse 10 of chapter 2, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, said, why have I found favor in your eyes? You should take notice of me. I'm a foreigner. Verse 13, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me spoken kindly to me, even though you didn't have to. And she takes that encouragement and she comes back to Naomi. And the narrative now is going to shift, as I said, toward Naomi. 
in the encouragement that Ruth received from Boaz is now going to be transmitted over to Naomi. Remember, Naomi at this point is Mara. God has forsaken me. His hand is out against me. And she's still back at the house. Ruth, every indication is she's working without but a short break in the day. But she's being encouraged by Boaz. So she brings that encouragement home to Naomi. And again, my point to you in this introductory comment is to never underestimate the power of an encouraging word to another person who needs it. Don't think, well, when you're prompted, think, well, it's neither here nor there. Things will work out. They'll be fine. They'll figure it out. Just take time, if so prompted, to be involved, to be an encourager. Certainly there's more depth to the story of Boaz and Ruth. I'm simply drawing out the simplicity not to be overlooked. It's how important encouragement is to a person in need. And then that, that spirit that's been lifted is contagious. It, it goes forth to the next individual. So we see with Naomi here is Naomi is here and Ruth is coming home here and the two intersect. So notice in verse 17, as the story moves forward toward Naomi in the much-needed encouragement that she has, and as Ruth then begins to provide it. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she shook it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Ruth is full. She is satisfied. She is pleasant. She is full with provision. And she's showing it to her mother-in-law. Verse 19, her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Remember, she parted early in chapter 2, early in the morning. Got up and said, hey, I'm going out. Good, go. Where were you? A natural conversation takes place here between Naomi and Ruth. You come home at the end of the day, and Naomi asks, where did you end up? And where have you worked? Where, did you, where is all this coming from? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Remember, Ruth, I'm going out and I'm going to find a worthy individual. Someone will look lawfully upon my condition. Again, an act of faith. And now Naomi's just starting to crackle, just a little bit in the narrative. She's starting to see, whoa, Ruth is coming home with provisions. Indeed, she gleaned somewhere. She did in a worthy individual. So you see, just her providence is just starting to break open. Her pessimism is being maybe lifted as she's sharing in what Ruth is bringing home in bounty. There's some indication that Naomi sees that Ruth is satisfied. She is in a blessed condition. And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Now, right there you see Ruth is simply telling the story. What would you do today? Oh, not much. I was just doing this at work and had this going on. A typical conversation. So she shares, there's this guy, so who's field? Oh, his name was Boaz. Right? That's Naomi. Her ears are like, Boaz? So whose field were you in today? I told you. The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now before we get to that next comment there of what Naomi says about Boaz, of which you well know if you know something of the story, don't skip past as I have introduced to you the encouragement that has come now to Naomi. Naomi sees it on multiple levels, and we'll get to the level, the second level next, but notice primarily up front, the first indication of what takes place in the life of Naomi by the encouragement of Boaz. 
you can kind of contrast verse 20, and that is Naomi's remarks here about the Lord. Do you notice, blessed, may he be blessed by the Lord. And then look at her description of the Lord. His kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now wait a minute, Naomi. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. He's testified against me. He's brought calamity upon me. Blessed may that man be blessed of the Lord. The Lord has not forsaken the living or the dead. Do you see Naomi's providence is rising? She is being renewed, refreshed in this experience when Ruth comes home with provisions. You're telling me you found a field. You found a field to glean in. And this is what the Lord has done. Blessed be this man who has allowed it. And the Lord has not forsaken the kindness. His kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi is being refreshed. However, there's more to Naomi's refreshment as the story is told. Notice the next, this, this invigorated Naomi. She's now seeing the Lord is indeed kind. But the story moves forward, doesn't it? Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. One of our redeemers. Interesting here is the language that begins to shift as she relates to Ruth. Going from, all right, fine, if you want to come, come. Now there's some sense through Ruth, hey, we're together, aren't we? We're one and the same. We're sharing in our inheritance. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. One of our redeemers. Do you see yet Naomi's gears are moving? This could be good for us, Ruth. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, Oh, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to that young, the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. There are two points that I hope to show this morning about this narrative moving forward in the role of Naomi, uh, as really chapter 3 is going to display, Naomi is at work as we leave the end of chapter 2 and jump into chapter 3. This new invigorated spiritual, um, uh, this, this pleasant spirit, this, this burden that's kind of being rolled away, so to speak, as, as Naomi is being excited for what she's seeing in Ruth, and she's invigorated, and it's not all selfish. It's not all driven on by her own sense of security or her own needs. Indeed, she attributes to the Lord this present kindness. She is being renewed and encouraged spiritually. But have you ever had a situation where that can take place? And maybe we get excited And our energies are renewed. Our glasses are wiped clean. We can see now perhaps more clearly. And yet we overstep our eagerness. Something is is, great. Hey, providence is changing around. We get excited and maybe we act a bit too excited. We move a bit further than the providence has opened. We overreact. Based on other reasons... We see this particular opening or this particular blessing as indeed what we need to take on after 110%. So it is with Naomi, I think we'll see in the next few moments, that this renewed encouragement that Naomi is experiencing causes Naomi to hatch an, at best we could call it, an ill-advised plan. That puts everybody in the narrative at risk. Naomi is excited. Reason to be excited. Being refreshed in the Lord. But overreaching the present blessing. This overreaching puts everybody 
in the web of relationships at risk. There are two points here then I hope to frame as the story. If, we were, if I was to step back with you this morning for the next few minutes, chapter 3 is kind of functioning with two structural components that we're being told about. It's moving the story. The progress of the story is coming with these two large structural pieces. The first is this that I hope to uh, show you, and that is Naomi's overreach on the blessing of the Lord. The first structural component to the move of the story that we're being drawn into, this is the point of what we're grasping is number one, Naomi's overreach on the blessing of the Lord. And number two, the second structural piece of the narrative that we're going to see together is the test to Boaz's character. Again, he's been introduced to us as a man who is worthy, who is lawful. And we saw all that he provided for Ruth so far in chapter two. And yet now, Naomi being invigorated and excited and sees, hey, by the way, oh, his name is Boaz. Hey, guess what? There's potential with Boaz. And this encouragement pushes Naomi to hatch an ill-advised plan. And then it, pre- it, it presents to Boaz a significant challenge to his character. The first portion, then jumping to the first piece for us this morning through the narrative, is Naomi's overreach on the blessing of the Lord. Where do we begin to see Naomi being so invigorated not to receive well what's being provided, but to overextend, to overreach, to lay hold of something that's not quite yet opened up in providence, and that is we see her overreach as she introduces for the first time kind of what often characterizes the entire book, and that is this concept of a kinsman or relative redeemer. And you see that where Naomi praised the Lord. And Naomi also said, this man, the man, Boaz, that you mentioned, is a close relative of ours. Do you know what that means, Ruth? As a Moabite, probably not. He is one of our redeemers. Now, as we step back just for a moment to recognize what this eagerness causes Naomi to do in hatching a plan. If you understand the background of the language of immediately what Naomi recognizes in the potential of Boaz, you would see why indeed she would want to escalate this relationship. And that is, if I could touch on the background of the concept in the Old Covenant of a kinsman redeemer. I'll just briefly fill in a few pieces of what it is like in the concept of a kinsman redeemer. Essentially, in its broadest stroke, you could recognize that the idea of a kinsman or a relative redeemer is a provision in the law for the sustaining of a family unit for Old Testament saints or Old Testament Israelites. That is, if you were in poverty, or you were in what we might say today, dire straits, the burden was not simply yours to bear up with, but it was placed upon family. It was shared, particularly upon an individual that we recognize as what is known as a relative redeemer, one who can then act on your behalf to square your debts. To bring you back into your own inheritance. So, for instance, you fell out or fell behind. So then what happened was you gave away your land. This was your inheritance, the place of your dwelling. And you gave it away due to debts or other financial difficulties or burdens. You gave way. A kinsman redeemer could restore that land to you through due process. There was another purchase beyond simply that of a purchase or a redemption of land. He could redeem an individual, you yourself. And again, this might be a little bit removed from us, but the idea of indentured slavery or bond laboring yourself, you sell yourself to your neighbor in order to work off family debt or in order to provide for what you hope to be returned to you. You would sell yourself into bonded labor. A redeemer can on your behalf purchase you back, gain you back unto your own land and family. We were watching, I don't know if you've seen any of these specials on television, Legends and Lies. Um, It's about stories, it's a book been written about the settling of the West in America 
early Western history and the idea of all the chaotic situation that was due out West in kind of the late uh, 19th century, right? 1870, yeah. And uh, there's a story, they pick out these main characters of settling the West, and one was what you know to be Davy Crockett, but we found out um, that's actually a lie. Don't call him Davy, I guess you're supposed to call him David Crockett. Davy is the uh, Disney version, and it wasn't how he was named. Anyway, David Crockett, it opens up with a story out West, and I only highlight that to you in this idea of bonded service. Again, at this point in time, we'd probably not be looked upon well if we gave away our eldest. You know, if I sent Owen over to the neighbors to live for two years and work off, uh, you know, some mistake I made. And now we're kind of in a bad situation. And Owen is not mine for a couple of years working off some debt that dad kind of created. But as to the story of the Wild West, it wasn't that removed actually here within bonded servitude where David Crockett actually um, learning his story a little bit, um, was uh, he lived with someone, I, I, I can't tell what the timing was, can't co- recall it exactly, but I know it was at least one year where they, his dad, their family fell on really difficult situation, really bad times, as many early frontier individuals did, and what he did then was walk David over to the neighbor, uh, to the, the next farm, and left him to split wood and work off the family debt while then he cared for others and tried to get things going again. And so David went over there and they were able to stay on the land because his boy went over and lived with the neighbor for over a year and did absolutely everything that the neighbor demanded. And that was the idea that he brought him back after time. And somehow David and his father were okay. I don't know how that worked exactly. Um, <laughs> it was a sad situation just to watch. You know, he's walking him over. He's like, hey, you know, do, that's your dad now. You know, um, uh, So the idea here is, again, that principle did remain beyond the ancient Near East alone, where there was a burden placed upon the family and one would work or the family would become workers owned by one because of their providence, their difficult situation. So the point being now, a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, Naomi is, again, without. And Elimelech, who lays hold of the land, is dead. Naomi asks Ruth, where were you? Who's his name? His name is Boaz. Certainly understand the idea of redeemer. Perks Naomi's ears up. He is one of our redeemers. In other words, this man can provide. He can pursue the restoration of our family. He can sustain our mark in Israel. This is significant for Naomi, and the gears are shifting. Particularly, there's one note that I would make moving forward in the idea of a kinsman redeemer that gets Naomi most geared up, and that is the marital aspect of redemption. So it is, if you were to look at Deuteronomy 25, I'll cite it for you. I won't take time to go there. I'm woefully behind already, and that is Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6, and that is the concept of a redeemer, where in that text you see quite clearly what the the rules are for a redeemer engagement, what it is, and essentially I highlight that for you to draw your mind most narrowly to the way Naomi is thinking, right? This is how it's working for Naomi, and that is that if uh, you have a brother and your brother's wife dies, you then are responsible for the brother's wife, your sister-in-law, in raising up an inheritance for your brother in the land of Israel, that his family might not be cut off. You serve as that redeemer kinsman or that um, uh, redeeming relative who can then raise up a family in the inheritance of the Lord for your brother. Um, and so Naomi is certainly at this point most particularly zeroing in on this marital aspect as she and Ruth are without a male influence and Ruth is a Moabitess. She's really hoping this is going to work itself out. Now, one more note about the history of a kinsman redeemer. If I were to say to you, do you see quite clearly the idea of redeeming kinship right here between Elimelech and Boaz? Maybe you'd step back and say, no, I don't exactly. Because I didn't notice that Elimelech and Boaz are brothers. And you'd be correct. So at this point in time, in the marital aspect, it is a bit of a lawful engagement, but a lawful stretch. 
In other words, Boaz has wiggle room here. There's nothing that by law is forcing Boaz to act on the behalf of Ruth. And we'll see two particulars why this creates even more. There's even more here simply that Boaz is one degree removed from the binding arrangement. And then also simply because it's Ruth, and we'll get to that in a moment, but that removes him yet another tear. So it is anything but a lock that, hey, he has to do what's lawful here. You're in. And remember, I've really liked you for a long time, Ruth. I'm with you and you're with me, right? So when you go in underneath his roof, you're bringing mom right, or mom-in-law along, right? This is the idea. Remember, hey, oh, he's one of my redeemers. No, wait, the language shift. He's one of our redeemers, Ruth. Well, you, I thought you, you know, sent me to the field and didn't care if I came back. No, I was waiting pins and needles for you to come home. I was wondering. You've been gone so long. I'm concerned. And by the way, he's one of our redeemers. So you see the eager spirit that is uh, being prompted here in Naomi. And uh, we'll see it a little bit further. Consider the next portion about Naomi's overreach here beyond the background of the idea of introducing to us, kind of getting into the mind of Naomi a little bit, recognizing this concept of a kinsman redeemer or a relative redeemer. And that is what it does to Naomi then, since maybe, might I suggest to you, it maybe is Naomi's well understanding of the law here, that she realizes Boaz, yes, but Boaz possibly not. And this, this sense of legality and what is the binding nature of Boaz to Naomi and Ruth prompts, I would suggest to you, prompts Naomi to act a bit recklessly. Notice the action of Naomi as she moves forward. We have to kind of piece it together here through the story. Verse 20 is where we'll begin again as Naomi is refreshed. But notice the language of Naomi as she moves through 22. Uh, beginning in the end of verse 20. Naomi also said that the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite, again, we already know that by now, but he's highlighting for us, uh, I think by referring to Ruth as the Moabite here, again, indicating Ruth is not exactly keen on what's being said to her about the concept of redemption. She's not familiarized with its particulars. So remember, you're calling to mind, Naomi is fired up. Ruth is a Moabite, remember. Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young, my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said, here's the, the beginning of Naomi moving us into chapter 3. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter. And particularly what she draws out about her being close to the men in the field. It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women. Lest in another field you be assaulted. Now, as we move forward from there, notice chapter 3, 1 through 5. So I note for you how Naomi is approaching the issue of the fields with Ruth. It is good. Stay in that field. Lest in another field you be assaulted indicating to us, as we've already heard, that the fields can be a bit treacherous. We found that in chapter 2 last week. And Boaz will have none of it. Verse 1, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is, winnowing in the, in, 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 uh, he is winnowing barley tonight. Now, you're tracking the term there, tonight. So, remember, the fields are dangerous. Now Naomi approaches Ruth and says, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? Listen, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make for yourself, yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go, uncover his feet and lie down. And then look at this kind of vague or ominous language. He will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Verse 8. At midnight. 
the man was startled and turned over. In piecing this together, if I were to highlight for you simply piecing this text together with what's taking place between Naomi and Ruth at this point, notice the wisdom of Naomi in verse 22, you could be assaulted. However, notice how her spirit continues to progress unhealthily or recklessly. She pressures Ruth to go tonight at nighttime down to the threshing floor. Again, if we did a brief Old Testament search on, the, on what takes place at the threshing floor, we'd find out threshing floors are bad, typically bad situations. Wait a minute, Naomi, I thought you didn't want me to be in any other field because fields are dangerous. Either way, go out tonight at nighttime. Down at verse 6, she did what she was commanded. And then notice it all goes down at midnight. Simply put, there is a reckless behavior here on Naomi's part to send Ruth alone down to the threshing floor with no protection in the middle of the night. Naomi is acting anxiously, treating therefore Ruth carelessly in efforts to see change come to her and Ruth's difficulties. Now, as I mentioned to you before, Perhaps it is not all selfish on Naomi's part. Perhaps she is warming up to Ruth a bit. The relationship is warming. She is pleased with Ruth's effort. She is happy now. She thought Ruth was going to be a real, a real dead weight that she had to pull. Now Ruth has shown up, taken the bull by the horns, acted in faith and made provision. So maybe it's warming a bit, the relationship between Ruth and Naomi. And indeed, as she says, I am earnest that you should find rest, Ruth. I want you to be cared for. However, the clear, reckless treatment of the entire situation certainly calls into question Naomi's motives. Now, before we jump on Naomi unnecessarily, And make much of her mistakes. Thinking, Naomi, you're putting Ruth in a jeopardized situation. How could you act so selfishly? Why would you put her in such a situation in the middle of the night when you knew this is a bad already, a bad situation? But before we jump on Naomi again, How often, I ask two questions to each of us. Number one, how often do we ourselves act out impatiently when we fear that God will not act properly? How often do we face certain situations that are unknown to us and then we are nervous or anxious about what God will do when He will do it according to His mercy and providence and so we act out impatiently. I'm going to act on my own here. You know, Providence isn't opening well enough. It's not tall. The door is too short. And it's not wide enough either. So I can see something. But you know what? I'm going to take that something and I'm going to stretch it both directions and run through it. Because I'm waiting on you and you're not making it larger. You're not making it clearer. So what am I left to do but act out of impatience when we fear the Lord will not act properly or timely. I press you on the issue of Naomi's apparent anxiety in causing Ruth's providence to open up for her and Ruth together by considering that Naomi has waited as long as she absolutely could for this providence to change. She finally looked at Ruth and said, that's it. I'm going to cause things to happen quickly. How do I get that kind of background read into the text? Notice verse 23. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And during this time, 
until the end of the barley harvest. So we know the narrator fills in in verse 23, Ruth did as she said. She told Naomi, I'm going to be in the fields. He said I could be in the fields until the end of harvest. So we find out from the narrator, indeed she was. She was in the field all the way through the harvest season. And by the way, this last notation for us in verse 23, during which she lived with her mother-in-law. Okay, so put a little bit of this together. Naomi is eager. Naomi is excited. Perhaps, or I would say to you, quite clearly with mixed motives. She does, I think, want Ruth to be cared for. Yet she's overreaching on the opportunity and the possibility of providence. And every day for roughly seven to ten months, Ruth is coming home and maybe not giving a good enough update about the progress of her and Boaz. Naomi is saying, did I tell you in the previous conversation he's one of our redeemers? How was work today, Ruth? Boy, say anything? Did you see him? What did it sound like when he said that? All right, that's it. I'm going to have to act on your behalf. Then we watched Naomi do just that. Grab Ruth clarify the situation to her a bit, and send her in to make it happen. I ask one more question before we move on about Naomi, as indeed it looks like Naomi waited as long as she could, and then she had to force some activity here out of nervousness or anxiety about maybe Ruth was just wasn't aggressive enough. Clearly, as we get to chapter 3, Naomi escalates the situation. So clearly, Ruth wasn't aggressive enough or seeing what was proper in the situation that Naomi was hoping she'd make use of. But I want to draw back just one second before I go forward. And I want to broaden the consideration of what's taking place in the text beyond the scope of simply Naomi and Ruth. I want to do so by asking you this of my second question here, simply about the activity of Naomi. And this is directed to each one of you as God's people in the consideration of applying the text. This question is, do we, you and I, and, 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 and consider this question with me and probe and consider it widely to yourself. Do we, you and I, treat the web of relationships that the Lord has provided us carelessly and inconsiderately when it comes to our own ambitions, concerns, and opportunities? I press it one statement further. This just speaks to me, and I I think, I hope to the men here. Husbands, do we genuinely provide our wives with a voice to be heard when we prepare to make significant decisions in our lives? I'm not talking, I, I, I guess in that question that I'm asking you men, I'm asking it with kind of, I would take my highlighter and put it on a voice to be heard. Yeah, so I would, I would highlight heard. Or do we give them a voice after the decision's been made and then pretend to care? Do we manipulate, act carelessly with the relationships that God has given to us when it is our own ambitions, concerns, and opportunities at stake? Again, I cite that to you, each one of us men, particularly husbands. I'm just, ladies, you get out of it. Who cares? I'm zeroing in on the men. You just deal with yourselves if that's what you're doing to them. But men, do we provide our wives with a voice to be heard when we prepare to make significant decisions in our lives? Again, at this point, I'm asking before we jump on Naomi, like, how dare you manipulate circumstance? How dare you push someone forward? in a decision, acting out of impatience 
and fear that God might not act properly with you. Well, I'm asking you, do you manipulate circumstance? Manipulate those close to you in web of relationships because at the center is your own ambition. We have a masterful ability of doing that. So we really look and peer into Naomi as we share in her shoes. But as I push a little bit further into the text, it, it moves us to then our second structural piece. So we're looking at Naomi, and I think considerably we see through the text that Naomi is indeed moving from, don't go into any other field, they're very dangerous. By the way, tonight I want you to go down in the middle of the night, alone, to the threshing floor of all places, where he's guaranteed to be. And by the way, whatever he says to you, do it. And go alone. And go all dolled up. Naomi. She's waited long enough, I guess. And this brings us to how it puts everyone in the web of relationships. Husbands, I rail on you yet again. It puts everyone in the situation at risk. It's not just you, men. It puts everybody at risk. When we simply manipulate the people and circumstances in our lives to achieve what is rooted in our hearts of ambition, it puts everybody at risk. So it is here at the second portion, second structural section of our text this morning, and that is the test of Boaz's character. Consider it with me as it prompts a bad situation that Naomi has created. Her scheme puts Boaz in an awkward and potentially dangerous situation. I want to introduce this simply as it's very clear cut here. Join with me in this thought of what's being painted in the situations we jump to chapter 3 of Naomi's scheme. Quote, Naomi put Ruth in real danger. Because threshing floors lay outside of town, Ruth could have been abducted on the way, never made it to Boaz. Boaz could have taken offense, have you considered that? At Ruth's forwardness, and refused to have anything more to do with her. Is Naomi wondering about that? I don't think so. Remember, she's putting Ruth in this situation and telling her explicitly, do whatever he says. Well, do we know what he's even going to say? No. We don't. Ruth could have been abducted on the way. Boaz could have taken offense at Ruth's forwardness and refused to have anything more to do with her. Though a man of standing in the community, as we see in chapter 2, he could have taken advantage of Ruth and, if necessary, lied about the exchange. Who would have believed Ruth's side of the story? And would Naomi have come to Ruth's public defense when she is a Moabite? Would such feminine forwardness flatter, embarrass, or anger Boaz? There was simply no guarantee that he would respond favorably or honorably. Also, someone could have awakened and seen Ruth laying at Boaz's feet. In the unsavory days of the judges, you recall, we saw the background. Again, this is taking place in the unsavory, as he says, days of the judges. Prostitutes would offer their services exactly at such locations. If people are people, no matter when and no matter where they live, the Bethlehemites would have savored a sex scandal. Naomi did no one any favors that night. She put both Ruth and Boaz at risk of yielding to temptation or being unjustly accused. With that context, then, follow with me through the text of exactly how this plays out as the story is told. The, t- the test to Boaz's character begins with the test of Ruth's beauty. Notice I'll read verse 1 through 7. Then Naomi said to her mother-in-law, or her mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, this is what we're going to do. He is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, 
put on your cloak. I think Matt's uh, version read your best clothes, or that was, uh, I think, what we heard in the public reading. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man. Notice, until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Can you imagine Ruth standing here? And Naomi giving her this idea? Awkward. You get it, right, Ruth? Observe where he lays down. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down. Well, what's going to happen next? He'll tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. Now, I draw your attention here through verse 7. Uh, that she did exactly what her mother commanded. And you notice that as Boaz had eaten and drunk, and the, the statement here regarding his state of happiness, his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid down. Now, I introduce this test of Boaz's character simply here by noting he is clearly, I think we're well to deduce from the text, he is clearly attracted to Ruth. Again, no statement, I do, I do put up front, no statement clearly indicates that he comes out and says, wow, Ruth is great, or anything a little bit more. But if I could piece together, I think you would recognize with me what's laying within the text as we observe that Boaz is eager to show charity to Ruth. For seven to ten months, their relationship lasted. It had been building. And I'll get to that, how we see that in the text. He wanted to provide protection. Remember, Ruth says, he pledged it to me, and then he told me to come back. In the whole season, he will care for me. As she told Naomi. And Naomi says, yeah, that is good. Get in that field and stay there. And we notice his abundance, his generosity of spirit and giving to Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Again, I note for you that Ruth's beauty or Boaz's attraction to Ruth is greatly at play here in this scenario. Remember, he could have ducked out of being a kinsman redeemer. When the conversation starts heating up, he could simply say, I am not brother to Elimelech. I owe you nothing. Furthermore, he could say, you're a Moabite. It's not even really above board that you are married already to an Israelite. I don't have legal obligations to you. But rather what we see is Boaz seeing Ruth as beautiful. He is not in opposition to her. Ruth here in this portion of the scene, as Naomi sends her, she is by all accounts a beautiful young woman. Again, we don't know exactly. The text does not come out and state she's gorgeous. We're just simply piecing together the aspects of the text that lead to indicate, indeed, Boaz is not simply indifferent to Ruth. There is an attraction taking place here, and Naomi is seeking to purposely exploit it. Maybe that's not fair to her. She's trying to unite it or escalate it. How do I say so? Well, notice, Ruth is purposefully, thanks to Naomi, smelling much better than the men at the threshing floor. Think about the long situation that Boaz is there. He is either at the threshing floor at this point in time, again, gaining his harvest. He is there also to protect it from somebody who simply waits until all the work is done and removes it from the the threshing floor. And it is not going to be a bunch of women who are around dusting up the place and making it, you know, lighting up the candles everywhere. It's, 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 you know, maybe that um, barn fresh smell. If you walk into a big barn full of hay, you know, it's only so fresh for so long. Maybe coming from the city, you're like, oh, man, that takes me to that earthy, woody smell. Great. It's better than smog and exhaust. But like 30 minutes in, you're ready for maybe not smog, but something different. And it's a bit too earthy. And the people who are pitching the bales of hay with you, they indeed are earthy, we could say. And you're working it out together. And it's not really the place where, like, you know, the, the candles are lit. And, and, and so 
Naomi knows a threshing floor. And she prompts Ruth, who where they already share a relationship, and says, okay, look, Ruth, this has been going on long enough. Clean up, put on some perfume, and go down to the threshing floor. This creates for Boaz a challenge to say the least. It is a test to his character. But as we see, so here I join with you in the middle of the night, verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now, what in the world would a woman be doing at the threshing floor laying at his feet? He too is familiar with the threshing floor. And I don't think he's had that experience before. The idea of him being awakened and the, the, the thought of, the, of her peeling back his covers, some make too, way too much of that. Uh, there's no indication of something sexual going on between them at this point in time. That is, that, is, that is way beyond the bounds of what's taking place here. Furthermore, we'll see that in just a moment as I get there. But the idea is it, that, that's out of bounds here. I think more naturally, he simply is, have you ever like, been in the middle of the night? Of course you've had this experience, and you're not using covers to sleep because it's ridiculously hot in your room. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, you're kind of like prompted to pull the sheet, maybe not the covers, but the sheet back over because your legs are cold and you're like startled to awake. That's the idea. He's here, laying here, and she peels it back, and then he's like, oh man, I need to cover my legs up. And then, whoa, that's a woman. Right? Startled. Sees, not sure, smells, confirmed. It's a woman. It's not one of the hired hands. She is clean, and we are not. She smells good, and we are not smelling good. But instead of at this point of tension and challenge, or could we call it a physical conundrum for Boaz, he doesn't act to exploit but protect. This is back to chapter 2, verse 1. Boaz is a worthy individual. Verse 8 through 11, at midnight the man was startled. There was a woman at his feet. He said, who are you? Again, the lighting, it could be lighting. It could be that his heart was a bit too merry. We're not sure of exactly the situation. He's groggy. He's not. She answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. And then look at this forwardness. Spread your wings over your servant. For you are a redeemer. It's a, it's a proposal. Marry me. Quite an awaking at the threshing floor for Boaz. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, this act of coming to him like this, this act of kindness greater than the first. He's referring to the story with Naomi. This is beyond what he would imagine. And that you have not gone after young men. There's plenty of eligible bachelors here. Whether it hasn't factored into your mind if they're poor or if they're rich. Again, how he knows this and exactly what's taking place here, he knows Ruth. He doesn't know exactly how Naomi's structuring the situation, but he knows Ruth. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Verse 14 and 15 note, finally, his protection of Ruth. She lay at his feet until morning. That's it. That's all that happened. But arose before one could recognize another, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Do you see the situation is bad? Don't let anybody know what happened. I know what the optics are here. Don't let it be told. Don't let it be known. Thanks, Naomi. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And she held it out and measured out six uh, six, uh, measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. Again, continued response here of Boaz makes clear Boaz's integrity before the Lord. He was in real temptation. Please don't overlook that in the narrative. Boaz was in real temptation. Boaz was in real awkwardness. And he never compromises integrity 
before the Lord in any interaction with Ruth. If we were to push it as some do and say something took place between the two of them. If you go kind of on the, on the more uh, liberal, less conservative uh, theological commentaries here. Again, they're all wanting to see all kinds of uh, uh, you know, scandalous situations taking place here. But it, it, we, would, we, would, we would push back, wouldn't we, immediately by recognizing Boaz's com, uh, conversation to Ruth is immediately my daughter. Rarely does a man say that to his wife in, in a real warm, uh, sensuous manner. It just, it, it's a confusion of categories. <laughs> then you press on further and he notes, everybody knows that you are a worthy woman. It would be awkward too to fornicate before the Lord and then say you're worthy. That would just not fit the context well. So again, we would immediately push back that something ill-fit took place here, something wildly inappropriate. The text certainly doesn't indicate. Rather, the highlight is not on this explicit relationship, but on the integrity of Boaz. He does love Ruth. And he shows it by not compromising her or himself before the Lord. I would challenge one last word to those who are here in relationships that are not yet married. That again, a man or a woman that you would desire to be a partner in your life before the Lord is one who would find your best interest and you would find that it is his best interest to be united by the Lord in integrity and obedience. Rather than simply giving way to instinctual lust. What is best for you is the Lord. What is best for him is the Lord. And that union of joy comes through obedience. Boaz knows this. And so he didn't take advantage, but protected Ruth. Final comment here for our time, because I'm way over. Boaz waits upon the Lord because he is not a schemer. That is, Naomi's like, hey, we could do this, we could do that, we can make this happen, we can make that happen. And notice simply as I close with you, verse 12 and 13, about the picture of Boaz and the test of his character. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. He comments to this worthy young woman, Ruth, who he blesses and is attracted to, who has proposed marriage to him. And he says, Ruth, it's true, I am a redeemer. Yet, there is a redeemer nearer than I Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. The test to Boaz's character is to manipulate the situation Block out or pretend to be ignorant of the fact that there is a kinsman closer who gets first right of refusal to redeem her. And he is not a schemer, but his life is governed by God and governed by God's law. Boaz is a man of righteousness. Final question I have for you in this situation as we peer into Naomi and Boaz and Ruth kind of caught in this situation but desirous of Boaz as well as I ask you this question and this is my final comment for the morning. What stands out I hope to offer you this morning yes, Naomi overreaching Boaz a man of integrity and righteousness before the Lord a man who puts the word above his own schemes. But something else I do press to you this morning. Have you ever made a blunder and found yourself in a situation that you feel I've made a grave error and now providence is stacked way against me? It was a dumb choice I made. And I'm greatly burdened by my present set of circumstances. I've put others at risk. I've put myself at risk put my family in jeopardy. I hope Ruth 3 comes to your mind then. When you find out through the story of Naomi, Ruth and Boaz, that God delights in redeeming providence. 
God delights in taking our bad choices and mercifully changing them for our good and His glory. Naomi put everybody at risk. God delights in changing that risk for His purposes, their good, and His glory. And it is no different with our poor, dumb, ignorant, and hopeless decisions that we make. If we've overreached, if we've overextended, if we've put ourselves in what feels to be a providential ditch of sorts, nothing's over. Lord delights to work all things for your good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time in the word.